G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Our special guest today was just two hours away from death, from drug-related heart and kidney failure. She was a young woman on a wild path to self-destruction. If it were not for what she calls a miraculous healing, she would not be here to tell her story of finding a life filled with possibilities and hope through Jesus. Karen Redpath has told her story in her book called Chasing After the Wind. Her story is described as a brutally honest account of the scenes she witnessed spiralling into a shocking journey through the dark world of drug addiction. On the other side of addiction, Karen has since spent 10 years working in drug and alcohol awareness education. And Karen Redpath has a powerful story to tell and remains passionate about warning and educating others on the dangers of drug and alcohol use and abuse. Karen Redpath, I want to make a special welcome along to 2020. Thank you so much. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Just one little thing. Um, I've actually written two books and only one of them is on the website because I speak in lots of secular schools as well as Christian colleges and Chasing After the Wind is more the secular version with godly principles. But the one with the full testimony is called Out of the Darkness and that's got the whole testimony in there. So uh, with all the finding of Jesus, yes. All right. I'll mention both of those books uh, as we go through our conversation. And Out of the Darkness, it's the one that's got your Christian testimony in it. And uh, it is a significant testimony, a wild past, drug addiction. Take us back to early years here, Karen. Okay, well, I actually grew up in a loving family, and like many people who head down this path, um, although it's not that uncommon, I had loving parents, I have two brothers, I was blessed at birth with a strong, healthy body, Uh, I was quite sporty, Um, I particularly loved horses, the first moment I laid eyes on horses, I fell in love and I got into horse riding, and my dad bought a speedboat in my teenage years, and I got into water skiing, I went to good schools, I had good friends. But in my teenage years, like so many teens, I just wanted to fit in. You know, I was, I was a bit shy and I didn't want to stand out. So I followed my friends into the party scene. It just started with a little bit of, um, you know, underage drinking. For some reason, young people think that's really cool, even though it's been done for millions of, <laughs> by millions of people over so many years. Um, and then a bit of cigarette smoking and it just felt daring because it was you know, I was underage and parents didn't know. And, you know, back then, I guess, we, first of all, we didn't have um, the drug and alcohol education that we do now. And I don't blame anyone for that. It just wasn't considered necessary back then. We also didn't have quite as much information on just how dangerous and deadly these things can be. We know that alcohol can kill and causes, you know, devastation with addiction. Cigarettes, of course, also we all know how devastating that smoking cigarettes can be on, on health, lungs and all sorts of issues. Cancer, because alcohol causes cancer as well. So, um, yeah, I didn't know that. So, anyway, I just started doing what others were doing. At 19, I moved out of home and I went to live in a really pretty little coastal town on the Mornington Peninsula. I'm, I'm in Melbourne. 
and in Victoria, the lockdown state at the moment. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I um, moved into a rental property with one of the local girls down there and she was really lovely but also really into partying and we really uh, gradually, you know, I had freedom and all the rest of it. We're drinking uh, lots of alcohol, smoking cigarettes and along the way marijuana. In fact, the marijuana I first smoked before I moved down there when I was, I was 18. These days, a lot of people start a lot younger, but at 18 I had my first joint and even then I remember you know I was hanging out with a few guys and and they offered it to me and there's this thought in your head I won't be cool to say no so I joined in and so this uh, grew when I was living down in the on the peninsula and um, one thing you know moves along to another with with drugs and alcohol it's very easy I absolutely believe marijuana uh, is and can be a a gateway drug to other drugs and The next thing, sorry, go on. Karen, uh, just take us back here just a moment because, you know, you're saying you were raised in a a home with a wonderful family and the, uh, the idea that even young people from... Loving homes can make bad choices. Yeah. Sometimes we think we're raising our children. Uh, they're in a safe and secure environment. We're trying to impart good values and not necessarily a guarantee uh, that you'll avoid some of the dangerous consequences of choices. Uh, just yeah, take us right. back into that for a few moments because, you know, tell us about your family a little because, well, you know, well, sometimes... Long hours. They ran a business in the city and worked long hours. And they changed. Um, they they changed my school when I was in. After it used to be back then form three. So um, what was that? Year ten and eleven. I went to a different school. So I was kind of the new kid on the block. And a big change like that can also make you a bit more vulnerable. <laughs> um, but I, I just think you know, with mum and dad at work so such long hours, um, they were still loving and provided. Like I said I had a horse and all sorts of things. Um, it just made probably temptation or, or they were also very strict. I was sent to Sunday school as a kid and I love my parents. I've still got my parents They're in their 90s and I've still got my parents. Um, and But mum and dad didn't go. It was just the thing to do back then to send your kids to Sunday school. So I didn't understand it. <laughs> to me it was just, it was not really talked about at home. So it was just like a fairy tale. Well, no one's immune here. And that's, I think, a really powerful point. Let's come back to your story, smoking your first joint at age 18. And uh, is this the start of a spiralling process where things start to get out of control? I think it is. Absolutely can be. Not for everybody, but certainly for some people. Some people have a really bad experience because it can cause psychosis and, and paranoia. Um, some people do, and I wish that had happened to me, but it didn't. Um, and, uh, you know, it's very easy once you... My sort of way of looking at it is that once you open the door into taking mind-altering substances like marijuana, usually beginning with marijuana, you've kind of you've dropped your guard and, and you've crossed that line. And it's so easy then to say yes to other drugs and and you're in that space of wanting to not be left behind and wanting to see what everyone else is and not look like a young, cool person and, you know, just experiment and see what it's like. So the next thing that I came across was hallucinogenic-type drugs, um, and they're really potent mind-altering substances that can cause some really scary incidences. I've got an incident written that I've, a story in particular I've written in both of the books that was a very, very freaky night. But I'd fallen for the trap and I was falling down this this, this um, 
this direction. And somewhere along the line, a friend came and visited and told me they were using, had been using heroin. Now, I was never going to use what I considered to be hard drugs, <laughs> even though we now know that marijuana is not a soft drug and neither is alcohol. <laughs> um, but I was curious and once again thought, oh, wouldn't that be cool to be able to say, yeah, I've used heroin. Like, you know, I've got an immature brain at this age and, and just not thinking properly. I didn't know the Lord, so uh, I wasn't brought up with youth groups or anything like that. Um, and, and I, which I think is really important for, you know, giving people um, just something to hang on to and something to, you know, uh, you need a group around you of friends, of really good, strong friends with good, good Karen, morals and things to do. So, yeah. Let's pause here and tell us about yeah. the drug experience for a moment here. I know listeners will be impressed to hear your thoughts here. When you start using hallucinogenic drugs, uh, some people think that's the adventure in drug taking and uh, some have horror stories to tell. Yep. Uh, when yep. you're hallucinating, having taken uh, hallucinogenic drugs, uh, what's that experience doing to you? Uh, well, you see, it actually just, you start to see things that you couldn't see before. Like it takes you sort of almost into another plane in some ways. And like I can remember at one time going to a party, fancy dress, dressed as a witch. Can you believe it? <laughs> and I, when I looked in the mirror, I could like, I don't know if it was imagination or what, but I could see through my skin. And it was actually really freaky, so I could not look in the mirror. Um, it, it, it distorts your whole perception. It really does. And, and you know, they can... look. I would never say that you wouldn't do it if there wasn't initially a bit of fun along the way. But let me tell you, it so often starts to turn nasty and frightening. And, you know, as I said, that then just progressed to other drugs and I started on the heroin. Now, I was still working a job and just thinking I was having a bit of fun. I didn't think, see it as out of control. Like I said, I'd had, I'd had no drug education at all. So I was just fitting in, having fun, like I thought. But when you look back, <laughs> it wasn't as much fun. Um, when I started using hard drugs, um, the first time I used heroin, um, you know, I was only going to do it that once. But this is a very addictive drug. And after a couple of years of living down um, the country, I moved back to Melbourne. And after a little while, I met a guy in, in Melbourne and, and he just so happened he'd been using heroin for a few years because you're hanging out with people using drugs, you meet people using drugs. And... One of the horror things, this is sort of part where it starts to go, is that when people use hard drugs like heroin, it could be GHB, ecstasy, one of these other ice, you start to see overdoses. And this is something I share with the, with the students because they need to know the reality. You don't often hear this in a message, but I actually overdosed a couple of times myself and one time was particularly serious. Um, but worse than that, that's on me. One time my partner and I had been out, um, remember I'm not a Christian here at this point, <laughs> and my partner and I had been out um, watching a, a band playing a, a big gig in St Kilda and he, he, we had been drinking and he sneaked out and scored heroin and didn't tell me. came home and I, I was in the kitchen cooking up a, um, a bit of a storm because I hadn't eaten for ages and we'd been dancing and drinking and I was hungry and it was probably about you know 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning. And um, he said he was going to take a shower and it took me... 20 minutes or so to cook and I, I went to tell him the food was ready and I knocked on the door and there was no response. So I stuck my head in to call out a bit louder and the room was completely filled with steam and there was my partner OD'd over an old heater. It wasn't too unlikely. And instantly I knew that when he said he was um, going to the toilet, he'd actually sneaked out and scored heroin. Now, you know, this is a really dangerous mix. I mean, heroin on its own can kill 
and um, alcohol on its own can kill, particularly binge drinking with spirits, you know. But um, uh, the two mixed together is a really dangerous mix. And I had to race into the bathroom and turn off the, the hot tap and I had to then get him. He was leaning forward over this heater. I had to get him back onto his back. Now, I'd actually seen prior to this a couple of overdoses and there were when someone, we were in a group of people using heroin, it could be one of those other drugs, GHB or something else, as I said, and um, someone would spot someone, you know, stop breathing and turning blue and, and get to them really quickly. Well, my partner had been unconscious for, you know, probably 15, 20 minutes. So he was actually, I've written in my book, Blue, that I thought about it later on. He was actually colourless, like grey. It was just horrendous. And his jaw was clamped so, so tightly shut that I had to fight to get his mouth open. I, I knew about um, cardio, you know, CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, but I didn't know how to do it. But I, all I knew was, was mouth-to-mouth resuscitation that I'd seen. Well, I blew and blew for nearly 40 minutes and, with no response. And in the middle of that time, I stood up, you know, and realised... You know, here I am in the middle of the night with my dead boyfriend. You know, what do I do? I'll, I'll have to call an ambulance. There'll be police. How can I tell his his, his mother? You know, like I was, you know, I was screaming, begging to breathe. And I, in sheer panic, I got back down to my knees and continued to blow into his mouth. And finally, after around about 40 minutes, a, a noise just like, came out of his mouth. And I gradually got him breathing again. So, you know, this is something that, you know, people don't hear about. We, we've had... You know, thousands of ODs in the city uh, that are recorded, but they're only ones where the ambulances go out to the ODs. There's all ones that happen where people, where other drug addicts resuscitate each other. So it's a really, really dangerous pastime. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture, and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. 1-800-316-316. You can join in our conversation today. You might have your own contribution. You might have a comment or a question. You might even have a critique for our conversation. 1-800-316-316. It's a confronting conversation. Karen Redpath is our guest. She's told her story in a book called Out of the Darkness. It's described as a brutally honest account of the scenes she witnessed spiralling into a shocking journey through the dark world of drug addiction. Karen, thank you so much for being so open about your own experience and uh, about your your partner in that time. And uh, uh, I I assume that he recovered uh, to some level there. But let's fast forward because this was not the only disturbing thing that was happening. You yourself were close to dying, in fact, suffering heart and kidney failure. Take us into your own addiction experience and close to death. Okay, so so what happened after his overdose, my partner's overdose, was that he was unconscious the whole time, so he didn't comprehend the severity of that overdose and continued using drugs. And even though I'd seen it all and lived through that experience, um, you know, it's, this is a very addictive drug, so I continued to use, use drugs with him over the next couple of years. I had a full-time office job in a large company in South so I thought I had it under control. But all of a sudden, a couple of years later, things started to go wrong for me. I started to have all sorts of weird symptoms. And cutting a long story short, I had um, I went and saw a few different doctors and specialists because I had arthritis and all sorts of things. And they discovered that I had hepatitis B. Now, hep B is a really nasty illness anyway. And I know there's a vaccination now. It's not 100% um, foolproof, but there is a vaccination. But 
what happened to me, I was given two months off work and rest was the only cure back then, I'm not sure now. And then I was still sick, another two months, still sick, another two months. At six months, I was so sick. If I, like a girlfriend brought me a scarf to knit and I did one row and I was absolutely exhausted and out of breath. I was aching all over. So I was actually uh, really, really gravely ill. I raced into the Alfred Hospital. Uh, my mum actually drove me and she... And while she parked the car, I, I sat on the steps and I collapsed on the steps and I got taken in in a wheelchair. And I saw a professor who did a quick series of tests and at that point I was diagnosed with acute heart and kidney failure. I was raced through the hospital corridors into the coronary care unit um, where I was actually put in the coronary care unit at, at 25 years of age. And at that point I was given less than two hours, less than two hours to live. What had happened, my heart was, my antibodies had malfunctioned and attacked my body, my heart, my kidneys and my arterial system rather than, it's called polyarteritis nodosa, rather than the hepatitis B. And because, you know, it's fairly rare back then, the doctors didn't know what was going on. I had let, my heart was so enlarged it was beating three to four hundred times a minute instead of 70 or 80 and my kidney function, I had less than five percent function in both kidneys. They said the only chance I had of survival was to have a heart transplant but finding a matching heart in two hours was impossible and they said my kidneys would not uh, withstand surgery anyway. So that was it. So and there I was. I might... Yeah, sorry, The doctor is there at the bedside yep. in the hospital telling you you've yep. got less than two hours to live. Well, this is an interesting thing. They didn't tell me. They told my family and mum uh, forced them not to tell me in the hope that not knowing would help me to live. <laughs> uh, but I was... My body was dying. Look, I could barely breathe. When, you, when your heart and kidneys shut down, your body fills up with fluid. And apart from having lumps of fluid all over my body, um, because my kidneys weren't functioning, my lungs were filling with fluid. And I, I, just, I was in agony. I couldn't breathe. Um, I had an oxygen. I was conscious. I had an oxygen mask. I was pulling on and off, and nowhere was comfortable. Um, yeah. So, but what happened was, it just so happened that my older brother um, had been a Christian for about three and a half years, and he used to tell me about this Jesus bloke, and I used to, you know, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, no thanks. <laughs> I don't need that. I'm, I'm living the life, and well, now I needed it. <laughs> and he contacted his pastor and others and others, and I found out sometime later that a few hundred people actually prayed for me that night and amazingly I survived and in fact they kept praying for me and on my seventh day in hospital I was still alive and the doctors were like this is amazing like you know you should be dead by now what's going on so they sent me off for another scan of my heart and the following day the result came through and I had three specialists come and see me and the words were um, this is amazing this is not the same heart it's like you have a new heart and miraculously, my heart had restored to almost normal. And so I was sent out then into the general ward. But that wasn't the end of the story. I spent almost five months in hospital because my kidney function was so poor. I had a biopsy that took nearly three and a half hours and my kidneys were so shriveled and hard that they said they just couldn't get a tissue from my, either of my kidneys. I was also the first person in Australia to have a drug called interferon. They flew it out from... Finland for me because the idea was while I still had the hep B my antibodies could continue continue to attack my body uh, unfortunately it was so experimental they gave me too much it made me throw up my medication and I had massive grand mal seizures I fell out of bed, ripped out drips I actually stopped breathing, my heart stopped I had to be resussed and they got me breathing again and I ended up in a coma for three days and at that point they um, 
said that, you know, I probably, that they didn't expect me to live again. But amazingly, amazingly, the prayers continued and I, I, I woke up again and came out of that. Um, so, yeah, it was an absolute horror story. Wow. <laughs> and then, so yeah. uh, when you know that the church is praying for you and uh, almost every local church has some sort of prayer chain where they yep. can get word out for prayer and it can go to tens, uh, uh, dozens, uh, even hundreds of yep. people and you're on the prayer chain and going through all of this time, and we're talking now months uh, in hospital, yep. Yep. where is that point where you recognise that God has something extra special for you. He's got your attention. Yeah, this is crazy. I'm a slow learner, okay? It took me three years. (laughs) What happened was um, my my brother's Baptist minister, I think I'll mention him, he deserves it, Brian McKelvey, he's the most wonderful man. He came and visited me often and prayed with me and I was at that point still where I just didn't understand it. I thought I'd survive because I was so tough. But when you look back at the actual medical records and the facts, it was a miracle. (laughs) Um, And I remember thinking, and I'm ashamed of this now, but thinking, well, I hope no one sees this, you know, because I didn't get I didn't understand. I hadn't been brought up in in, in the church with prayer and so forth. But he was so kind that I, I just accepted that. <laughs> um, when I'd been in hospital for about three months or so, I began to realise that I was only 25 years old and I'd never had any children. And, you know, like so many, most people, I was hoping that one day I, I'd, I'd meet someone and settle down and have a family. And I began to ask doctors about this and, and they said, look, you know, Karen, with the damage to your kidneys, all the medication you're on, rah, 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 you wouldn't survive, neither would a baby. And as you can imagine, I was devastated. Like, not only, you know, was this a dream being squashed, but also um, it was my own fault. <laughs> you know, I was blessed at birth with a strong, healthy body. Karen, let's come back to your story because... On the other side of uh, all of these challenges that you're going through, in and out of hospital, heart failure and healing, kidney failure that continued, uh, you heard a wonderful testimony uh, from someone who'd been through something similar to you. Yeah, well, what happened was when I first moved out of hospital, I moved back in with my partner and um, despite my doctor's advice not to have children I felt incomplete with as a mother as a, as a woman wanting to be a mother and I actually lost a couple of babies it was devastating and then I fell pregnant I was actually told to terminate that pregnancy and I couldn't do it I actually went into prem labor 26 weeks early and spent seven weeks in hospital then my kidneys went into failure and I had an emergency cesarean six weeks early and amazingly my beautiful son Kyle and I survived now, a year on, um, I was feeling really incomplete with only one baby. <laughs> and as crazy as it was, by this point, my kidney function had picked up to 40% and that both kidneys, both damaged, only 40%. Not a good idea to have a pregnancy. <laughs> um, and my brother, um, his minister, Baptist minister, had been telling me about this Pentecostal meeting called a miracle meeting and had invited me along for three years. And I uh, had said, yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> And because I was des- desperate to be a mum, I decided, well, you know, maybe there's a God. Maybe he can help. I won't become a Christian or anything. I'll just check this out and have some prayer and he can help me and I'll have more babies. You know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of crazy, but that's where my mind was. Anyway, it just so happened they met that, that day, that week. It was only once a month. And I went along and, a, and a, a lady shared her testimony, Pastor Nancy Harkin, her name was, and she shared a testimony about how she'd had heart and kidney failure and God had healed her. 
Well, you know, I was just blown away. Like I felt like someone was pointing straight at me. Like who else in that room was there because of heart and kidney failure? <laughs> and um, as, as nervous as I was, I, I went up the front and I decided to just pour out everything, all of my issues that I was having at the time and what I'd been through. And as Nancy later handed me to pray for me, uh, even though I wasn't a believer at all and I wasn't even looking for God, I just felt this incredible sensation like love just wash through my body. And I just like so many people do, I just burst into tears. You know, I'd been told I was going to die, then I'd rattle with pills, I'd be bedridden, I'd never have children. All of this stuff was that I'd pushed down and, and I'd lost babies and, and I just burst into tears and I just wept and I wept and I walked out of that place like, what the heck just happened then? And, and also I was then contacted by someone from that church further down the week and some people I, I used to know, they asked me, do I know these two guys? And I said, yes. And what, how do you know them? When I last knew them, they were dealing heroin. And these guys had become a Christian a year before and went to this church also. And that helped me on my journey because there were people I could relate to who'd been through what I went through. And, and I gradually, you know, I could look back and see what, that God had been in, on the journey the whole way for the, through my illness and my sickness and, and kept me alive through all of this. It wasn't me being tough. It was a miracle. And, uh, and it's really obvious. Um, and I also said to God, you know, if you could heal my kidneys in one week, one, I mean, my, sorry, my heart in that first week, it was almost 100% healed. It's fine now. But in that first week, why not my kidneys? And I got an instant answer. If I'd been completely healed in one week, I would have got it back into drugs. And so God knows, like he knows, drugs are very addictive. And with people all around me still using it, it would have been very, very tempting. And in fact, I've been left with very slightly damaged kidneys and I've been on one tablet for all of these years since then. And, you know, praise God, it hasn't increased. And it's almost like he left a thorn in my side. It's a great warning to young people. Uh, and it's also um, it stopped me from ever using drugs again. I got very close a couple of times because it's very, very tempting when people around are using it. The fact that I'd been left with a thorn in my side was enough to say, no, this could kill me. So Karen, crazy. Yeah. when yeah. you're in the depths of despair, and it can happen, no doubt, uh, different people, different circumstances, different desires and understanding of where they're at in their life. And and for you, uh, having children, was this was a desperate moment for you. And uh, so this, this yeah. having children, this is something here that you can actually relate God's miraculous power to. You've got three wonderful children now. Talk to, yeah. talk to us about your children and God and how he meets us in those times of need. Yeah, well, what happened after I had to, uh, went to that miracle meeting over the next three weeks, not instantly, but over three weeks, my kidneys began to improve for the first time in three years. And then I was blessed with a son and a daughter. So I've got Kyle, Stefan and Phoebe. And with Stefan and Phoebe, I still had, as, as I said, slightly damaged kidneys, but I did not go into um, kidney failure. They delivered him a couple of, uh, four weeks early and then Phoebe only three weeks early. So I got better and better and better. And with kidney damage, you would imagine getting worse and worse and worse. Um, so, yeah, they didn't need intensive care like my first son did. So um, it's absolutely blessed. They're all grown up now. They're all married. Um, I've got two grandchildren. I, it, it's, you know, God is just so amazing the way that he's turned my life around. So, yeah, so in Now, when, when God is in the picture, uh, you've yep. got hope on the other side of the addictions. Uh, you yep. might have noticed this. Uh, what happens to people who don't? 
look for God, discover God, uh, don't have an encounter the way that you do. I mean, because they're lacking a dimension of that hope in their own lives. You can identify how that hope helps you to remain free from addiction. But for people who don't uh, look to God, uh, where are they at in all of this? Oh, look, you know, I look back now and think, how did I, I mean, I can still remember what it was like to be a non-Christian and to not believe and to think that those people are crazy, you know, like, and I understand how, how the world thinks like that. We need praying for our family, our friends, our relatives. Um, you know, it's not God's will. In Second Peter 3, 9, it says, it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And, and it, it needs, it, Christians need to be praying because, Oh, you know, I, I look back now and think, because once you become a Christian, it, 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 you cross a line and you, your eyes begin to see things in a spiritual perspective. And as you read the Word and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you suddenly see everything so differently. <laughs> There's a different color to the world and you understand things that you didn't understand before. You know, the enemy blinds people to this, obviously, you know. Um, yeah, so in 2010, I wrote my first book, Out of the Darkness, and, um, you know, that I had had, unfortunately, what I haven't mentioned, but this is reality. My, uh, I married my, my partner with my, when I was pregnant with my first baby and he actually went really well for a while and then he fell back into drug use. And I lived with someone battling drug addiction for many, many years. Now, he loved his children and wasn't a bad person, but I, it did end up bringing the marriage to the end and I realized I was probably enabling him. Um, he's actually woken up, turned his life around, back with Jesus and doing really, really well. So praise God. God can save, you know. Um, so that's another part of the journey that, you know, I've seen this from both sides, from using drugs myself and living with someone using drugs. And through my, my book, Out of the Darkness, a teacher who read it invited me to speak in the school where he taught. Now, I didn't set out to do this. I was terrified of public speaking, probably more than the next person because of the heart failure and the heart pounding. And <laughs> But I woke up one day and realized, you know, this is not about me. And, you know, I've had some amazing responses to my message, the book. I've had, oh, everyone says I couldn't put it down. It's helped people into rehab. I mean, there's no guarantees, but it, it, it's, it, I know God anointed me to write this book. Um, and it's, it's had some amazing responses. So, yeah. So, and the school speaking. Um, these days. Sorry, you're working yep. in drug and alcohol awareness education, and you've been doing yep. this for now 10 years. Yep, a bit over 10 years now. Do yep. you have some insights here into just how extensive uh, substance abuse is across Australia? Is this a growing problem? What's your uh, perception look, it, of what's going it is, on? It is, it is a huge problem across Australia. And in fact, recently I did a Zoom meeting with the uh, Deputy Minister for Health in Victoria, and she just confirmed what I already know. Lockdown has not in, improved things. It's actually uh, increased drug and alcohol use. Um, so we have a, a major problem. Um, that's why my sort of message is one that I'm trying to get into as many schools as possible. Um, there's um, harm minimisation was brought into Australia, or into sorry, into I don't know where it first started into the world in two, uh, 1985. And surprisingly, it actually wasn't brought in to minimise the harm of drug and alcohol use. It was actually brought in to, to uh, curb the spread of HIV AIDS. And then it's been taken on you know, to try and help with uh, drug use. And there's three um, main pillars for harm minimisation, which is demand reduction, which is what I do, which is trying to reduce demand. It includes warning people and, and educating them so they make wise choices. And it also includes rehabilitation and helping people to get better. 
The second pillar is supply reduction, which is the, kind of the policing, preventing, stopping um, or disrupting the production of drugs and, and import of drugs. So that's the policing. And the third one is harm reduction, uh, reducing the adverse health and social and economic consequences. And so many people jump straight to number three, and that's where you get like injecting rooms and pill testing and from my point of view, they're disastrous. You know, we've got injecting rooms in um, Richmond and, you know, it's opened up. There's, you know, it becomes a honeypot for drug dealers. There's crimes. It's very close to a primary school. The primary school students have seen people hitting up. They've seen overdoses. They've seen, you know, like a dead body. Um, there's syringes everywhere, um, you know, and not everybody. People, I know from drug use, when a drug user, a heroin user or whatever scores their drugs, they want to use it straight away. If they're 200 metres from the injecting room, they're not going to bother. So they use a local driveway or, or laneways. and it, It's actually just disastrous. I really believe the, the government needs to look into funding more rehabilitation centres like quality dual diagnosis where they treat mental health issues and drug addiction because they're often um, interlinked. Yeah, so... When we, uh, yeah. All these terminologies I've found over the years can be quite uh, confusing. You know, harm yeah. minimization, demand reduction, yeah. supply reduction, harm reduction. And yeah. there are elements in our community that want to promote uh, alcohol and uh, even the whole yeah. movement towards the decriminalization, yeah. legalization of marijuana. They use some yeah. of those terminologies to support their own arguments of how yeah. you know kids ought to be allowed to take pills at music festivals and things like that. Where do yeah. you sit in all of that? Because well, this one is of the things, yep. yeah. Look, I don't agree with it. Um, it's a shame that music festivals aren't just music festivals. But having been down that path, I understand why they do these things. But um, you know, like for example, even just alcohol. In 2014, the World Health Organization uh, reported that. Um, alcohol kills one person every 10 seconds worldwide. So I've, I've got an article on this that I show students. Um, and it's different causes of death, but the key is the alcohol. So, um, you know, there's that. And then and then when you say pill testing at the festivals, they're testing to make sure that pills have MDMA or ecstasy in them. Everyone who's died of one of these overdoses has had MDMA or ecstasy. That's the drug that's actually killing them. <laughs> and it's normalising drug use. That's the other side of it. You know, it, I understand why people are trying to do this, but yeah, it, it's actually not. And it, there's another side that's really important as a Christian. Now, this is something I'd, there's a definitely a spiritual side um, to drug use. In, in the Greek translation of the Bible in Galatians and Revelation, the word pharmakia is used, which relates to pharmacy and sorcery. In 2017, you may be aware in Melbourne, we had what was called the, the Burke Street Massacre, and where a young man drove um, his car, he did dories in the donuts in the middle of, um, outside the Flinders Street station, and then Flinders Street and down Burke Street Mall on the footpath, killed six people and injured 26. Now, he um, well, had been an officer, and he thought he was the Messiah. In fact, two days before, he'd been into the church, and into a church, and said, um, Judgment Day is coming. Uh, in 2020, April last year, four police officers were killed uh, by a truck. Who, they'd pulled over a car that was speeding a Porsche, and there was four of them standing next to it, and a truck swerved across a couple of lanes and smashed that car, killing, killing four police officers. And the truck driver was on ice, and the and the um, Porsche driver had, was on some sort of drugs. To me, it seems like ice-like behaviour. The guy in the truck. Now, this is this is not me being a weird Christian. This is in mainstream media. 
that um, that James Gargasula thought he was the Messiah. The guy in the truck said he was being chased by a witch. And this is horrible, but it's real. Um, Liam Anderson, Angry Anderson from Rose Tattoo, you may have heard of him. Yep. Tragically, he was bashed to death by a friend who'd taken MDMA, MDMA or ecstasy, had taken several tablets. And the friend said that he thought Liam was a demon. And if he didn't kill him, the demon would kill him. So as you can see, there's a theme yep. here. As Christians, we're quite aware, aren't yep. we, that, uh, that yep. when you've got all of these hallucinatory... Uh, actions uh, that they are and they do appear to be quite occult connected so when we talk about a dark side and a light side uh, we're looking for that deliverance to the light side not be on the dark side time's running short Karen parents call you in desperation about the choices that their young people are making how do you coach parents uh, who are at their wits' ends, uh, they're now protecting themselves sometimes from their own children. Oh, absolutely. What, what do you say to parents? Look, parents, it's a really hard one. For me, I believe that, that one of the answers, if a child is, is you know, 18 or over, over, I guess, is tough love. I've seen, look, it's, but everyone has to weigh it up for themselves. I know from my own experience, my partner, my husband, wasn't able to overcome it until he was actually out on his own and fell on his, you know, um, face and realised that this is this is, um, you know, something's wrong. I need to turn my life around. And he moved into rental property with um, some Christians, and and yeah, it's just a wonderful story for him as well. Um, it, I tend to what I do is um, I meet with the with the with the child who's got the the drug addiction, usually in a public place, just have a coffee somewhere and have a chat. And I've helped a few people into rehab, but uh, let me tell you, with ice, it's really really hard to get someone off ice. Ice actually rewires the brain; uh, it releases such high levels of dopamine that and dopamine's a feel good chemical in the brain. It, it releases up to a thousand times the normal levels. And what happens is then the brain stops after constant use, the brain stops um, releasing dopamine naturally. So a person not using ice is just in a depressed, suicidal state unless they have the ice. So it's very, very tough to get them. They need to go into rehab, I mean, detox for a week and then go to a rehab. And it's a really, really tough thing to try and do. I'm actually at the point that when a person is totally destroying the lives of everyone around them, it's time to, you know, for compulsory rehab. I really think I think I know enough families have suffered so much that they would probably agree. So, but you know, in John ten ten, the Bible says the thief comes only to steal, and to kill and destroy. And I believe drugs and alcohol are one of his key tools yeah. amongst not just young people but older people. But then now, Jesus goes on to say that I have come that you may have life, and life to the full. And this is this is something that I you know try to help people to understand before they go down. That path, yeah. Uh, most people will say, if I'm looking for Jesus, I better go and try and find him at a local church. If you've got a drug addiction, some churches are going to be better equipped than others. Uh, oftentimes, yeah, pastors yeah. will know how to refer and how to deal with some yeah. of these things. Uh, sometimes they're not necessarily, that's not their strength. What do you yeah. say to people about connecting to a local church? Because, you know, for well, churches that have people who are drug addicted, it's a hard road for them as well. Oh, look, you know, I know I've been involved in a, a church, you know, where you do street witnessing and that can really help in areas where you know there's drugs when it's not locked down or <laughs> when you're allowed to be out there. But there's also churches that do um, 
food. They hand out food to people that are that are desperate, and they witness in that way. And that sort of that is legal because it's a a, a caring um, support. Uh, I know of a church that does uh, showers for people who are. Uh, they've got a truck with free showers for people who they're giving love and showing and leading and guiding and getting out there and doing it if that if you can. Otherwise, it's like praying as much as you can, witnessing the people that you know. You know it's. Uh, inviting them when they're young to youth groups, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's it, it, there's so many people out there in need. Um, yeah, it's it's it's. I don't know. Like 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 I'm saying, what I do is trying to prevent them from heading down that path by by giving them the truth. And I feel a real call to speak in more Christian colleges because the parents who mainly the parents who come to me help are Christians whose children have grown up in the church, gone to um, Christian colleges, and got out into the world and got into drugs and you know because satan hates christians probably more than anyone <laughs> so he's going to tempt them as much so so no yeah. doubt prevention is better than cure and so yep, uh, you tell your story as often as you have the opportunity there's been lockdown yep. you mentioned yep. you're in melbourne it's been tougher yep. for you over the past 18 months uh, yep. Are you available? Zoom presentations around around Australia. Yeah, sorry, yes, so, yeah. so for Zoom, so for listeners, wherever they might be listening right around Australia, you're available yep. to share your story and to yep. uh, just in, insights for youth groups and yep. those sorts of things around anywhere? Yes, yes. I've also spoken in businesses. I spoke in a mining company in 2017 and 17 workers went into rehab after, after I spoke. They also offered some help for them to do it. Um, yeah, and I've spoken at the Australian War Memorial, introduced their drug and alcohol policy. So I'm available to speak. Um, at the moment, it's mainly Zoom, and it's actually working quite well. So I'm still in, like I'm in the corner of the <laughs> of the screen, and and I have my PowerPoint presentation. Yeah, yeah. So well, it's yeah, confronting. I would, I would love to. Yeah. And it's powerful. And for listeners, if you want to connect today, you might want to invite Karen Redpath uh, to speak to your workplace uh, via a Zoom meeting or whether it could be, uh, you know, schools, colleges, uh, places that uh, are offering opportunities for, for getting this sort of education uh, in front of people. Let me just give a, uh, uh, just to mention drug and alcohol education supporting youth and adults, the DAISY website, daesy.com.au. Uh, people are able to go to that website. There's some connecting points there for, uh, for getting some education, uh, Kieran. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There is. Um, there's a there's a link for inquiries. Also, I just want to mention, I've, for the last two years, I've been a board member of Drug Free Australia, and they also offer some funding on my behalf to schools. So it's, I don't charge nearly as much as some people anyway, but it's even easier for people to uh, have a presentation. And they also offer a, a free online resource called Save Your Brain. So they've been wonderful support of what I do as well. Um, yeah, so it's it's uh, you look, and I also adapt my presentations to whoever it is that I'm speaking. I tend in within schools, I tend to speak with senior schools, like uh, senior students, ten to twelve. Um, I have spoken to year nines. Schools know where their students are at and what sort of environment they're in. Um, you know, so they can choose. Yeah, so. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's so I've got a scripture to finish with when we finish, so don't forget yes. that. <laughs> well, uh, hit us with the scripture now because we've got to tie things together. 
I know. Psalm 118.17, I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. And that is my passion. So, yeah, yeah. You've got an amazing story to tell, Karen Redpath. You mentioned you've got two books. The one that has your testimony is called Out of the Darkness. The other one is called Chasing After the Wind. And uh, they're around this issue of drug and alcohol. And uh, the websites, let me point people to Karen Redpath, K-E-R-R-Y-N, redpath.com.au. I mentioned the DAISY website, D-A-E-S-Y.com. Out of the darkness, chasing after the wind. Karen, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with us today on 2020. My pleasure, my pleasure. It's a story I wish I didn't have, (laughs) but as I do, I love sharing that just the the grace and the forgiveness and the power of God, you know, just turning my life around from hopeless (laughs) to hope. So, yeah, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.